Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are excited to be joined by Mike Delpretti. Mike is a global real estate tech strategist and a scholar in residence at the University of Colorado, Boulder. He's a former tech entrepreneur and CEO. He founded and sold his 40-person tech startup, Agora Games, working on games such as Guitar Hero and Call of Duty. After Agora, Mike moved to New Zealand to work as a corporate strategist, identifying investment opportunities at TradeMe, which is New Zealand's largest marketplace and classified website. He is the author of a book, Adventures in Real Estate Tech, and several research papers. Yeah, this is a really interesting interview, uh, Bela, and I think our, our listeners will love it. But before we begin, we'd like to share with our listeners that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? Boy, I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startups. We thank Phillips Lytle for their support of the entrepreneurial community and their sponsorship of the Unconventional Path podcast. Thanks, Bela. With that, let's move to the interview with Mike Delpretti. Good to see you, Mike. Yeah, you too. It's been a while. You look like a radio host. Nice setup. Yeah, well, you know, it, I uh, I play the part on uh, on YouTube. Yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah. How are so, things going out there? Uh, things are good. Um, you know, this corona thing is uh, sort of a new experience, I think, for everyone who's alive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my point is no one, you know, no one's experienced it before that's still with us. So... It's yeah. really weird. Yeah. It is. It is weird. Yeah. We're, um, yeah, just stuck inside. Been here for kind of four, four weeks, almost five weeks now. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so Mike, uh, I've already started recording. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Mike Delpretti. And uh, so. What have I done? Here's my first question uh, If you're at a social event, uh, mm. Not one within your normal circle. And, uh, you know, you introduce yourself to somebody and, and they introduce themselves and then they ask you, oh, nice to meet you, Mike. What do you do? How do you answer that question? So that's something I've struggled with for years. How I answer the question now is I say I teach up at the University of Colorado Boulder because that's it's simple and people can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a longer answer. Yeah. So what do, what do you teach at uh, <clears throat> University of Colorado Boulder? I teach part time. I teach one class in real estate technology. So people say, whoa, what does real estate technology mean? You say, think about companies like Zillow and Redfin, um, companies that are kind of using technology to change the way people buy and sell houses. That's what I that's what I focus on. That's what I teach. Oh, OK, cool. And now is that also related to what you do uh, in the other part of your life? Yes. So I, I teach and then I do a lot of consulting in that space, working with companies like that all over the world. And I do a lot of writing and research um, and, and publication of, of that analysis all in the same space. Kind of started with that question, like what are some what are some new business models and new technologies that change the way people buy and sell houses? Uh -huh. Wow. So that's really cool. 
And uh, so, so. How, how has uh, how has the <clears throat> Corona thing sort of impacted uh, what's you and what you do? Um, how has it impacted me? I'm just stuck in my house all the time. So I usually I usually work from home, uh, which is not that big of a change. But I also work from coffee shops, and I'm unable to go to those coffee shops anymore. Yeah, which is disappointing. Um, I also travel, have traveled kind of a fair bit, both, you know, in the U.S. and then also internationally. Can't do that. Um, but, you know, because everybody around the world is stuck at home, we're able to do these Skype and Zoom sessions quite frequently. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of leaders of businesses, you know, very large businesses around the globe. And, you know, we're just sitting in their living room or their, um, you know, their office. So it, it, with the Corona thing, you, you're kind of you, you take this fear of missing out FOMO like that's gone. Everybody's stuck at home. So everybody's around and kind of able to do this. It's this great leveler. Yeah. Um, so that's how I that's how it's changed me. What was the other part of your question? Uh, I forget. So no, I, I think right. it's interesting in, in, in that it is impacted the whole world. So everybody sort of has the same, fundamentally the same ground rules. Mm. And, and so then, you know, <laughs> if you have an international customer in Germany, uh, well, no one else can come see them either. So, so it's right. not like they could pick a different person to fulfill that need who was from France because they could come and visit them and meet them eye to eye. So we're all stuck in the same sort of boat. So that, yeah. that does sort of level the playing field. And it and it's amazing how quickly we have adapted to this. Yeah, yeah. The human resiliency is quite strong. It, it's, it, I mean, it almost doesn't seem like a big deal. You, you, I'm looking outside. Everything's, you know, the world hasn't ended. There's not, you know, local militias patrolling the streets. It's, it kind of looks normal. Um, and everybody's, yeah, just kind of rolling with it. Yeah. Yeah, it just looks normal, except there's a lot fewer people walking around and it's interesting here on, on the morning news, which which I still tend to watch here in you know your old neck of the woods, the greater all capital region of upstate New York, and the traffic report. You know they <laughs> they always used to say you know seven, you know this highway's plugged and there's a half hour delay here. There's nothing. <laughs> they still do traffic reports. They, they still surprised. do traffic reports, but there's like yeah. nothing. They show the they show the cameras on the highways, and there's like five cars. Wow, <laughs> it's remarkable. Wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> it's crazy. So uh, how did you get into this uh, real estate technology sector? <sighs> yeah, it's a good question. So after after my time in the capital region, you know, I, I started Agora Games, did that, sold it, uh, stuck around for my earnout, and then we moved to New Zealand. Yeah, right, so let's, let's, do, go, right? let's go all the way to back then. So you, sure. you and I met uh, back when we were both at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic mm -hmm. Institute, and I was running the, the incubator there, mm -hmm. and you were a, a student, I think, right? Yeah, or, I was a grad student. Yeah, and then that's where you started a company. Yeah, and and uh, as I used to call it, Angora, but it was, yeah. <laughs> it was thanks. Yeah, yeah, it was Agora game, uh, Agora Games, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. That well, that's what it evolved into. Yeah. And, and so talk about sort of the, you know, you were a graduate student, you know, why not go work for a Fortune 500 company and get paid, you know, 100 grand a year, uh, you blaze off on your own, sort of what was the thinking behind that? Um, I mean, my parents were entrepreneurs, you know, I was kind of surrounded by that. My, my dad was a college professor. Uh, and my mom and my stepdad were civil and environmental engineers. So college professor, not so entrepreneurial, but civil engineering, that was, they started their own, they started their own firm. So when I was a kid, 
that's what I was surrounded by. And I, re- I remember being like, I don't know, seven or eight, you know, I spent time growing up in the country and the, the family had this farm stand up the road. I'd, I'd go there and I'd get some flowers or whatever. And then I'd set up my own stand in front of the house and sell the flowers. Like I was just entrepreneurial as a kid. I, I just, I liked that. You know, I liked making money or doing new things on, on my yeah. own. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So it's so really, was, really in your blood. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, nobody told me, you know, my parents didn't take me by the shoulders and said, don't work for the man, Mike. But um, it was always, it was always around me. Uh, and then when I was at RPI, I worked for, I worked for GE, so big Fortune 500 company, um, and their e-business lab. But that was, you know, that was a small lab of 20, 25 students on campus. So it wasn't really General Electric. Like, we didn't have little cards, and you didn't have to go to their campus. Um, and that was still entrepreneurial. Uh, I don't, I mean, I think this, the story of my life is just kind of serendipity, right? It's just being in the right place at the right time. I didn't have this preconceived notion I'd start a company, but you know, I remember bumping into you and Simon at the incubator. You had this thing going on, like where somehow you had the domain name incubator.com and you wanted to turn it into this network, right? To connect businesses and startups and the community together. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I was just kind of literally at the right place at the right time. So I helped on that. That kind of evolved into a spin out business, Agora Studios, where we'd be building software for economic development organizations, which sounds as exciting as it actually is, which is to say not at all. Um, and, and but that just, you know, we did that. And, and in our spare time, we kind of we, we started dabbling in the video game space because I don't know, it was just fun. I was young. I played games like what could we do there. And, you know, we bumped into the Vicarious Vision guys who are also in the area. And they said, hey, you know, we're working on this Tony Hawk game. Um, we need all this networking stuff done. We, at the time, we were doing all this networking stuff. So we just put it together. And then that was Agora Games. So you, you can't sit down and write a business plan for that. You know, it's like step one, be at the right place. Step two, make sure it's the right time. Um, it just kind of happened. And, and you know, you take those opportunities and, and, um, and go with it. So that was, the, that was the weird path from A to B, so to say. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, the right place and the right time <laughs> – uh, maybe necessary ingredients, but they're not sufficient because there's mm. a lot of people at the right place at the right time, but they don't do anything, right? It's actually taking that first step and actually saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Is, is, is the third element of that, the third yeah. leg of that stool. Cause there's a lot of people who, you know, were at the right place at the right time, but they just kept doing what they were doing before that point in time. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I, I guess so. Yeah, I had that hunger within me to do something yeah. on my own. Now let's just let's just give it a go and and see what can happen. Uh, yeah, and it, it happened to work out. Yeah, and that's a common trait in in you know doing all these interviews for, for this podcast. We're up into the eighties now. Wow. And uh, you know it's it's a very common trait that people uh, oftentimes recognize an opportunity uh, or they're in the right place at the right time, but then they take that first step. And once they take the first step, the second step's even easier, right? And the third step's mm-hmm. even easier because now you got momentum and now you're going. Um, so, so that's really great. So, yeah. a- after after uh, Agora Games, you you sold that, right? Yeah. Yep. And who did you sell that to? There's a company called Major League Gaming down in the city, and that's they're they're kind of an esports pioneer. E- esports is still a thing, you know. You you can watch people play games, and it's I mean it's bigger than ever. I don't know. I I haven't followed it, but. 
multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. It's kind of sports. Yeah. So e- yeah, e-sports has, e- e-sports has gotten huge in college now and universities. Yeah. So yeah. all these universities have these e-sports teams. All of a sudden there's, <laughs> you know, the nerds can be on a team. Yeah. <laughs> And they ha- they've built stadiums. It's 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 one of the biggest hottest things going on, and and I'm, I'm bet you Boulder has one too. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll look around. Yeah, I bet I don't you, think, I I bet you they have an esports team. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So you sold that, and um, and then what what happened? Yeah, sold that, and you know I remember I, gosh, I think it was I think it was advice from you. You know, it was kind of going through that process. You're like, just write, if you're thinking about selling your business, write down, you know, in an index card, what you want out of it and keep it in your back pocket. And as you go through the process, you know, pull it out and make sure you're, you're actually, you're actually getting there. Um, and, and I did that. And for us, it wasn't about, you know, trying to get the most money or, or anything. It was just about, it was about creating potential energy. You know, I often, in my life, I often think about kinetic and potential energy and, and making decisions to, enable more potential energy, more opportunities, more possibilities. So for, for me and us at the time, that's what it was about. It was, you know, we're kind of in our little, we're in our lane and it's kind of predictable, right? But by getting into esports, you kind of expand the lane and you, you get, you get all these new opportunities. So that's what it was about. So, you know, we did that for about two years or, well, I stuck around for about two years. You know, the other, the other bit of advice that, that, folks like yourself give to entrepreneurs is, you know, when you sell your company, um, you know, you're going to have a good, ideally you'll have a good relationship with the champion at the other company who buys it, but think about what happens when they go away. Um, and that happened for us, right? The, the guy went away after like six or nine months and then, you know, it was other people that we didn't necessarily have the same type of relationships with. Um, so that was, so for me, I, I stuck around for two years for the earnout. That was interesting and exciting and new opportunities, but I just kind of wanted to, I wanted to get going, try something else, do something, do something different. And, you know, that's, that's why we moved to New Zealand. Um, it was trying to trying something different on all aspects, not just career wise. You know, I, I, when I think about people in their career, I think about kind of two, two types of people. You can tell me if you agree or not, but you know, there's, there's the people that kind of stay in their industry. You know, if you're an aeronautical engineer, you kind of stay an aeronautical engineer for, for your career. And then there's other people that just kind of jump from thing to thing. And I was definitely that, you know, I, I didn't want to stay in gaming. It was kind of, I, I feel it wasn't intellectually challenging, right? I wanted to try something new. So when, um, when we decided to move to New Zealand, you know, it was suggested to me that I look for a job. So I did look for a job and I got a job as a, um, uh, kind of a strategy and new ventures head this big internet, the biggest publicly listed internet company in the country, which was totally different. You know, they, they owned all these classifieds and marketplace businesses like eBay, Craigslist, the, the equivalent of that, but for New Zealand. And, um, yeah, that's, that was my job. It was basically run strategy for the group, which was a $2 billion publicly listed company. I had no experience running strategy for a multi-billion dollar organization. Um, but it was also focused on new ventures. You know, how can we, how can we, uh, invest in or acquire or partner with entrepreneurs to, to bring them into our ecosystem to do something. And I had experience with that. So yeah, it just came together and, um, and that's where I spent the next four years down there. Yeah. So you, you picked up your family and you guys moved to New Zealand. Yeah. We just left, I mean, literally eight box, eight cardboard boxes that would fit in the airplane and that was it. Give it a go. Yeah. It was great. And, and, and that is, like literally on the other side of the world compared yeah. to from where you were. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so talk about that experience. What was that like? 
Right. I mean, you're you're going from running your own business, you sell it. So now you're working for a bigger company and you have a boss and that kind of stuff. But now you're what, maybe you were 30 years old then and and you're running strategy for a $2 billion year business. I mean, that's like, what? Usually the strategy guy's the old guy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it was, it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was a publicly, it it was a publicly listed company with a board and investors. And, you know, in this, uh, we didn't have quarterly earnings, but we had half yearly earnings, you know, and you're in the six month rhythm of earnings. Um, and it it really is a drag, you know, after a while. So on, on the one hand, working for a larger company, um, I mean, it was super interesting and super exciting and it was a new industry for me. You know, I was, I was working on businesses that, um, again, were like Zillow, you know, marketplaces where people use to look for property to buy and sell and to advertise it, uh, a jobs board where people advertise jobs and look for jobs. Um, we had a dating site. We had a travel site. We had an automotive site where people would, you know, list their cars. Uh, this company had 75% of the population of New Zealand was a member. Right. So if, if you kind of get rid of the very old and the very young, it's basically everybody was a member, which is such this incredible opportunity. You know, we have this we have this reach. <coughs> Excuse me. So it, there were all these like exciting possibilities and it was intellectually challenging things to learn, new people to, to work with um, and resources, you know, significant resources at our disposal. We could say, yeah, we're going to spend um it, you know, I mean, I, I was leading investments for 10, 20, 30 million dollars. Like, that's really cool. Um so it was, yeah, it was, it was good. I, I think the, you know, the, the other side of the coin is, well, you're in a publicly listed company and the decisions are not your own. I, I can't say I got a really good feeling. I want to write a check. I want to launch this. You have to go through all these hoops. Um, you know, the CFO, who was a good friend of mine, our CEO, our board. Um, it's just nothing happened. Nothing of significance could happen fast. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and so, Let's let's take uh, the Agora experience and the New Zealand experience. If uh, if you were if you had to say what are the, the the four big things you learned from those, what would they be? Oh my gosh! Okay, the three big things you learned. <laughs> I'd I'd have to think about it. I'm I'm trying to. I mean, there's, there's always, so with the last thing I'm talking about, I mean, there's always pros and cons in any sort of business. So the bigger business you have, you know, the bigger numbers, more employees, bigger revenue, that's great. You have more, you have more oomph, more, more uh, fuel in the tank to do stuff, but it, it comes with the downside of being a a publicly listed company sticking to a six month earning cycle. Um, that's the one thing. Ah, here's a second, here's a second thing. Uh, this is a good one. This, and this ties both experiences. Um, the easiest way to kill a company is to acquire them, right? Um, you gotta like, you gotta leave them alone. And that was that was my job at, in um, New Zealand. The company I worked for was called Trade Me. Um, I, I told the, the invest, you know, the companies we invested in. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna block for you. Like we just bought you, or we invested in you. You keep doing exactly what you're doing, doing. All right. I'm going to absorb all the pain in the butt stuff. I'm going to worry about board reports and finances and budgets and, and all that. And I'm going to try to give you resources. I'm going to try to give you something, but literally, I mean, I kept them in a separate building and I just ran interference for them. Uh, because as soon as they come in and you can do that for like, I think two years is kind of that time period, right? Um, the honeymoon does not last forever. Uh, but the best you can do is run interference for that two years as hard as you can. 
because the, the quickest way to just squash a business is to acquire them and fold them into the larger organization. Yeah, encumber it, encumber it with all of those uh, uh, constraints bureaucracy. and bureaucracy. Yeah, bureaucracy, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so did you learn that when, when you guys got acquired at, at uh, Agora? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it was more positive, right? They bought us and they left us alone. We were, we were a couple hours away. Uh, we were, as a business unit, we were profitable. So that gave us some, some leeway. Um, yeah, they just, they just totally left us alone. And then as that two year mark kind of started nearing towards the end, they left us alone less and less. And that's when things got more and more annoying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think I, I, I saw it from both, from both sides. Yeah. Which was great, like the experience. I mean, I was on, I was literally on all sides of the table, and it's really, it's good experience to have. And I think you need that to be able to be, you know, a corporate investor, right? You need to have been an entrepreneur and gone through that. Yeah, yeah. So how how long were you at Trade Me for? Four years. Four years, and then sort of you decided to depart there. And uh, what was was there a trigger for that uh, event? It was just about um, New Zealand's far away. Mm. You know, when, when we moved, the kids were three and five. Um, so what would they have been, you know, and when we, so when we moved back, <coughs> what's that seven and nine, um, you know, just, just one thing. I wanted the kids to have a relationship with parents, grand or grandparents, my parents, um, cousins, aunts, uncles. Right. And, you know, we were in this rhythm of kind of every two years, we'd come back and do an America tour for two weeks. And yeah. that just, that, that was not sufficient yeah. and nobody would visit us. Um, so it, it's just far away. So it was more of a personal decision. It's like, let's, let's get back. And New Zealand's great. And if I could, you know, drag it up to be off the West or East coast of the U S I'd still be there, but it's, it's really far away. So it was more of, um, yeah, personal decision to come back. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good reason, man. That's a real good reason. Yeah. You know, those are those are valuable things. It's interesting, you know, since since I'm a, a refugee uh, came to this country as a little kid, uh, the family unit for me was was my mom, my dad, my sister and I. There was just four of us. And that was it. I had, had no relatives, no cousins, no, no grandparents, no nothing. And so yeah. I grew up in this environment where wherever we went, I had my whole family unit with me. That was my whole experience. And it was uh, once I met my wife and we got married and she has this larger extended family. And, and I said, wow, there's all this stuff that I missed, right? I, I didn't have cousins. I didn't have grandparents. And then when we had kids and then I saw the relationship my kids had with, you know, my parents and my wife's parents, I said, holy crap, there is a lot mm -hmm. of value to that. And it's gotten mm -hmm. me a, a tremendous amount of respect for, for people who, who uh, value that and make the decision that you made, right? To say, you mm. know what, this is, this is okay, but I, I want to, I want to have a richer life than just what I do between, you know, during the daylight hours. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Entirely. That is, it's so important. And, you know, we've, we really, um, I mean, I, gosh, I see it now. And, and especially I look at the pictures of us now. So we'll get together with, um, with my wife's family who's, and we'll go to Michigan and we'll get a house on the lake and they've got three kids. We've got two kids. I mean, it's just so much fun, you know, and you, you think about, I mean, I look at the picture now and I just yearn for it. I'm like, I want to get out of my house. I want to hang out with other people and yeah. 
do that. But um, yeah, no, those are great experiences. Yeah, I, that's that's the biggest impact it's had. This Corona thing has had on me is I can't go see the grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> right? Where are they? They're out of bounds. They're they're twenty minutes away. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So we normally see them a lot. Uh, you know, once or twice a week. And yeah. uh, now all of a sudden, yeah, we drive down there and, you know, we keep our distance. And because I'm, I'm unfortunately at that age where I'm in the, uh, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of high risk group. And uh, we go down there and we, we run around the yard, but, you know, we keep six feet apart. So it's, yeah. it's sort oh, of man. weird. <clears throat> uh, cool. So uh, you left New Zealand and, and you came back here. And yeah. um, did you uh, come back to another corporate job or what, what did you do career-wise? No, um, kind of in that transition period, I, again, another career shift. Um, my The portfolio I looked after in New Zealand, can, you know, real estate, automotive, jobs, general marketplace. I was, I was pretty interested in real estate. Um, I kept coming back to that. I was like, no, oh, this is an interesting spot. So that's when I had that question, which was, you know, what are some new technologies, new business models that are changing the way people buy and sell houses? And I'm a data guy, so I wanted to I wanted I wanted to get data. I wanted to really understand that that question. So that that's what I decided to do. I was like, all right, I'm just going to focus on that, you know, kind of on my own and invest invest the time. So I spent um, I spent that first year, 2016, traveling a lot around the world, going to different countries, meeting with people, talking to folks on the phone, you know, in in Europe. I was in Southeast Asia. It's kind of all over the place. Um, just gathering as much knowledge, trying to absorb that. Cause the other thing I realized, you know, my job at, at trade me was, was strategy and new ventures, you know, so that was, this was supposed to be my job, look for opportunities, new business models we could get into, but at a big company, I could only spend a, a percentage of my time doing that. You know, the, the way it worked for us is once I acquired something, I managed it, you know, so my available time kept getting smaller and smaller. Um, I, I was, you know, 20% of my time I would spend just kind of sitting around looking, thinking, researching and, and how did that happen? A lot of desk based research, some phone calls or travel, but you're in New Zealand, you just can't do a lot. So I, I wanted to know what would happen if I devoted a hundred percent of my time to that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I did. Just kind of doing it on my own. We, um, we actually came back to the capital region. We were there for about a year up in um, the Lake George area where my parents are. So it was kind of like a soft landing. Um, and then we looked around, we're like, we could be anywhere. Where should we go? Um, started making a list of, you know, cool, interesting cities and what's important to us. And we picked Boulder, Colorado. So we moved there in 2017 and that's, that's where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And it's interesting because most people who think about real estate and going into real estate, think about it from a buying and selling properties perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you think about it from a, from a technology perspective. And a strategy perspective, you know, and just like what's real estate, like like, I'm not, I don't know, am I interested in real estate, like houses and like, yeah, kind of just as much as I'm interested in cars or deck furniture. I mean, it's, it's of interest to me, but I think the industry is really interesting because it, you know, the, the Venn diagram has all these, it's overlapping things. Like there's data, there's a huge amount of data and numbers. So you can really get in there. There's so many different strategies. You know, there's the realtor who's been doing this for 50 years, the same way it's been done for the past hundred years. And there's all these new companies like Zillow and Redfin and open door trying these new models, you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, and I don't know what the third Venn thing is, but you know, I guess it's just so big. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a big industry. And what attracted me to it was the fact that it was hard. Um, you know, if I think about 
automotive marketplaces, how people buy and sell cars or jobs. Like, I, I don't know, I could see how that was going to play out <clears throat> over the next five or 10 years. It wasn't hard. It was kind of, it, it's going to be difficult to get there, but intellectually it was kind of straightforward. Real estate, no idea. It's like, why do people still buy and sell the way they do? What, why hasn't more change occurred? It was just impossible for me to figure out how that was going to play out. So I wanted, I guess that last circle in the Venn diagram was intellectual stimulation, right? I needed something that was hard yeah. and real estate's really hard. Yeah. It's big, but it's also really hard to figure that out. It's not just numbers and data, but it's psychology. It's so much psychology. Yeah. So yeah, I just kind of picked that and I was passionate about it, got interested and, and that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years. Well, I find real estate is interesting because even if you just take a country like the United States, um, the way you buy and sell a car is pretty much similar across the whole country. The mm. rules and regulations are sort of the same. Mm -hmm. uh, but with real estate, it's different, right? It's even within a state, the way they do things in one county and the traditions of how they <laughs> do something in a different county can be different. So the transaction process can be different. Right. The yeah. buying process can be different. The way they show properties, the way they talk about them, et cetera, can, is very regional. So that makes putting together these broader, wider systems a bit of a more challenge because oftentimes you have to accommodate to those traditions to how they used to do things. I, I think what's interesting about it for me is the psychology aspect. You know, it, it is people often talk about, um, you know, it's like. Uh, well, I don't know. So psych psychologically, I mean, real estate is the biggest transaction somebody will ever take. You know, it's not Netflix or Airbnb or Uber, these kind of frequent tra low value transactions where the cost of making a mistake is relatively small. Um, these are infrequent high value transactions where the cost of making a mistake is huge. You know, it's similar to cho you know, higher ed, choosing where you're going to go to college and that investment. Um, so so what is that? How does that affect people going through this process? And how does that affect how technology affects the whole process you know and the answer is huge there's like huge differences here it's not like netflix um or it's not like buying and selling a stock this, this is fundamental right it's your family it's your kids it's where you're located it's school districts it's safety it's shelter on maslow's hierarchy of needs right so you know people talk about real estate technology and all this new stuff but really there's all this psychology going on so there's just a never-ending stream of kind of interesting things to to see what's going on. Um, real estate's also kind of this last bastion of venture capital, right? Where VCs and investors have only become aware of it over the past couple of years and have started pouring billions of dollars into companies in this space because there's nowhere else to put the money. Real estate's like the last one. Um, so it's changing very frequently. Like there's, it, it is not static. Every month there's something new to analyze, to write about, so it's fresh, right? It keeps me interested. And when I teach my class about it too, it's like, it's different every semester. There is no textbook. This is the first class on real estate technology in the world, right? And it's constantly changing and there's no textbook. I'm not talking about how to buy and sell a house and what escrow means, right? It's about all this other stuff. Um, and it's, it's never the same from semester to semester. So it's, it's, very, um, it's very fluid, very dynamic. Things are happening at a pretty good clip, which keeps me interested. Yeah. So what are some, can you give some examples of how, how technology is changing or is going to change sort of the real estate space? I mean, other than the obvious things of Zillow, right? I mean, I get that. That's like you move the catalog online, <laughs> right? 
It, yeah. went, it went from a book that you used to pick up for free to now it's uh, now it's online with some additional data and stuff, of course. But uh, what are some other ways where, where you see this uh, impacting uh, the market? Um, so there's companies out there and Zillow's one of them. Uh, another company is called Open Door. There's these companies called iBuyers, instant buyers. So if you want to sell your home, you can sell it to that company instantly. Like they'll, you go on their website, you enter your address, they'll give you an offer within 24 hours. At least they would before the pandemic. So this is all pre-pandemic. They'll give you an offer within 24 hours and then you, you, you can get a check in the mail by the end of the week. Um, so it gives you certainty and speed, right? You don't have to list your home. You don't have to think about what agent am I going to use? What price is it going to be? How long is it going to sit on the market? How many open homes do I have to do and clean up and get the pets and the kids out of there? You just replace all of that with a company buying your home. They, um, they kind of spruce it up really quick over two weeks and then they resell it. You know, and they make, they make their money through a fee. So the fee is a little bit higher than what you would uh, pay to a real estate agent. And then also like a real little bit, uh, the spread of what they buy and sell a house for. Uh, this is not we buy ugly houses or yeah, fix yeah. and flip. It's, it's really turnkey. Like they want a home where they can resell it really fast. So that's going to it's not going to work in upstate New York. It's going to work in markets like Phoenix, where all the houses are new. It's sunny all the time. And um, you have high predictability of what a home is worth. So how does technology help that? Um, technology helps these companies who are buying thousands of houses a month. Um, it helps them value them very fast. You know, they you can't just get his estimate or look at a couple comparables like they got to look at a lot of data to understand what the home is worth, what they can pay for it, what they're going to sell it for after, you know, one to three, one to three months. So I think that's that's kind of a big um, that that's really the only like the biggest and the only large area in real estate where technology is really, truly making a meaningful difference. Aside from that, it's just it's fundamental stuff. Real estate is pretty basic. Um, in terms of how the how the system works, so you know, machine learning, this AI, that it's blockchain. It, mm -hmm. That's all like that's all super niche. It's it's not even having an impact yet, because um, a lot of the stuff is just um, you know solutions in search of a problem. They're cool technology, and they're trying to say, can we solve this? Can we solve this? Can we solve this? Can we solve this? Um, but in reality, it's real estate. It's supposed to it's supposed to be kind of hard and slow, and I think that's what people are comfortable with. Yeah, I don't want to buy a house with the click of a button. You know, I want it to take a little while, so yes. I, I have time to make sure it's it's what I actually want to do, and it's kind of fun going through that process. Yeah, yeah. So, so <clears throat> you've gone from uh, you know starting your own business, uh, and at uh, Agora you had how many employees? Was it fifteen? We had about forty. Forty. 40 at, oh, okay. At the max. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, to selling that, then going to work for a really large company. And now you're a solo practitioner? Yeah, just me. Yeah, so so talk about the advantages and disadvantages of, of those various different, right? You've been at all ends of the spectrum. You, you've been at, you know, the solo yeah. practitioner you are now. <laughs> you worked for a big, uh, big, large corporation and you had your own, your own business. So t talk about your thoughts on that. I've, I've thought about that quite a bit. Um, the answer is pretty easy. It's employees. That's the, that's the advantage and the disadvantage. <laughs> um, so the advantage of what I'm doing right now is that I don't have employees. Employees are kind of a pain, you know, you just, I don't know, HR and it's, it's a headache. Um, the disadvantage of what I'm doing now is I don't have any employees, you know, and, and really what that's about is resources. You know, I, I, I miss having the resources at my fingertips of my previous two companies, whether it's cash, people, 
talent, like anything. You just you could you could kind of have an idea on the on Sunday and then walk in on Monday and be like, all right, we're we're doing this. Especially with your own business when I'm the boss. Like that was great. Um so I I, I do miss having the having the resources. Um but the other the other big advantage of what I'm doing now, not only what I'm doing, but kind of how I'm doing it, is I have the the freedom and flexibility to get curious about things. Um so I, I spend you know, I spend a lot of time doing research and writing and analysis and publishing and nobody pays me for any of that stuff. Some of the, some of the reports I sell, but you know, so the only person in charge of what I get curious about is me and I can spend as much or as little time on that as I want. And I can read a bit of new, like yesterday I saw some news and you know, I, I sat down poured myself a drink and wrote up an article and published it today. Like, no, I, it's just me. I can, I can kind of do that stuff. So I, I really enjoy having the the, curi- um, the time to explore things that I'm interested in, you know, not having a, a boss or or any sort of stakeholders to to influence that um, over time. So that's that's good. But, you know, it's kind of it's me in the office um, mm-hmm. and my family, like my 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 kids know more about real estate technology than is good for them at this point. Um <laughs> But, you know, you do miss something by kind of just being on your own and, and not being able to to bounce ideas off colleagues sure. and stuff. Yeah. But kind of is what it is. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> when you decided to branch out on your own, um, you know, you sort of had to develop your brand. You had to develop your reputation. Mm-hmm. You had to people had to get to know who you are before they're going to hire you, before they're going to engage with you. So. So walk us through that process. How did you do that? How did you sort of build up the the Mike Del Preti brand in the real estate technology space? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and it's <clears throat> it's a moving target, and it has been for for four years. And there wasn't a plan; like, there's no master plan here. It was really, what's the next logical step? I'll do that, and then see what see what happens. Um, and, and you know, my teaching here was was again being at the right place at the right time. Like I. I you know, part of the reason we moved to Boulder was because there's a big university here, 40,000 students. Um, I was up there at the business school talking to some of the entrepreneurship people saying, like, I'd love to come in and do a guest lecture. Like, I want to get involved. How can I help? Um, you know, I just wrote this book. I, I published a book on real estate technology. Um, and they said, oh, you should actually talk to our real estate people. You know, like the, the guy's door is right over there. Um, they got a curriculum approved, budget approved, everything for a real estate tech class. They just need somebody to teach it. I mean, you can't like you can't plan that. That was that was really serendipitous. Um, but the brand, no. I mean, I I started doing all this research and writing, and I I got some work with some folks. Uh, and then you know, I remember kind of it was in uh, I remember sitting in my um, my bedroom in my parents' house with Jen, my partner, and we were just talking and, and whiteboarding. And she's like, "Why don't you start writing? Like, why don't you start publishing some of this stuff?" And I was like, all right, maybe, um, like I, I hated writing like that was not, but, but for me it was like a bucket list. It was like, all right, I'll, I'll do that. Like, I'm not very good at writing. I, I wasn't, you know, it was like passive voice and just not great. Um, so I, I jumped into it and, and invested in that. And, and that's what I started doing. I started, <clears throat> you know, publishing these, these articles, this analysis that, that I was doing. And that's what started building up the brand. And it, and it wasn't, I didn't say at the beginning, all right, my brand is going to be um, unbiased, data-driven, uh, Mike Pretty. I That's just kind of who I am. And that's what I started publishing. And then a couple of years later, you know, we sat down and we're like, all right, what, what is the Mike Del Party brand? And those were the words that came out. It's like data driven evidence, you know, fact based. Um, 
so it it yeah it like it was very it was very fluid right it was just kind of start doing that but that's how it started it was just getting something out there and you know i i created a mailing list and it, at first there were 10 people on it um you know now when i send some i sent something out a couple of weeks ago in the real estate space i think you know it was 40,000 people got it right so it just takes like a lot of time and a lot of hard work um, to get to that point. And I think the best way to demonstrate your brand is through your activities and your actions, not who you say you are, but who you actually are and, and what you put out there. And that, that's kind of how it worked out for me. Yeah, that's well said. That's well said. You know, there's a lot of people I run across who, who uh, leave a large job, like a large corporate job, let's say, <clears throat> and they say, okay, I'm going to be a consultant. And, you know, the phone never rings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Because it's a lot of work to develop that brand. And unless you're, you know, Jack Welch and you leave General Electric, your phone's going to ring all the time because you have already established your brand. Mm -hmm. uh, but for most of us, establishing that brand is a process. And approximately how long did it take before you sort of had, you know, a, a, a good viable uh, business? Two years. Yeah. yeah. I was just, I mean, uh, I was just looking over past tax returns um, to get, you know, for pre-approved for a mortgage. And, um, you know, 2017 wasn't too hot, but, um, kind of, yeah, 2018 is when things really started to come together. Yeah. Um, and, and again, there, it wasn't a, a, you know, there wasn't a big plan. I, I and I haven't, I like, I don't do any sales or business development or cold calling or any of that, you know, it's just me and I can afford to be really selective of who I work with and what type of engagements I have. So all of the, it was funny. I was, um, hold on, I'm going to grab a book. <clears throat> so, you know, back in 2017 and 2018, I was like, how do, what do I do? Like, how do I make money? How do I turn this into something? You know, I don't want to be a consultant, but I do want people to pay me money. And, you know, I go on these morning walks and here in Boulder, they have all these little free book libraries. I'm literally like having these discussions like to the day and I walk by and you know, the consulting Bible is in this, in this free book, um, free book library. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, you got everything you need to know to create and expand a seven figure consulting practice. I'd never heard of this guy. I never heard of this stuff. Apparently he's a guy. Um, you know, but it was like, it was like, um, um, you know, the sword down from the heavens, like, Oh, here, Mike, just take a look at this. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it helped me figure out how to do that. So I, I kind of set up my practice in a really good way that works for me. Like I don't bill, I don't have an hourly rate. I don't, I don't do project work. It's not like there's a deliverable and I, I get that done. Um, it was really kind of outlined here. It's all, it's all just retainer stuff, you know? So the people that work with me, they pay me a bunch of money every month and I talk to them as much as I possibly can and, and help them out given my experience in the industry. And there's, I mean, there's not really anyone else like me doing this in the industry. So it's not like I'm, I'm an agile consultant, you know, one of millions who are, who are doing this. Um, and I have this brand and I have a, a, a history of, of the work that I've done for free, you know, just to put it out there because I've been interested in it. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, all kind of, it's all kind of really aligned itself in a way that's um, interesting for me. It pays the bills and, uh, you know, I can kind of keep growing and doing new interesting challenges like I can I don't have the resources to do big things but I work with companies that have the resources to do big things and 
you know, I, for me at, at this point in my career and my life, I need a portfolio approach to what I do. I can't, I'm, I'm unemployable. I can't work for one company. Right. But I have, I have a portfolio, right? I teach, I do consulting for maybe like less than 10 companies. I advise some startups. Um, and then I, um, what else do I do? I just have my own time where I do my analysis and, and writing and it all like flows into each other and, and helps it out, but it helps alleviate boredom and, and it always keeps things fresh and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike, if, if something comes across your desk, uh, do you have a process you go through for deciding whether you, uh, <clears throat> follow that through, uh, and engage with it and, 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 and do something about it, or it just goes into the trash? Is, is there, is there, is there a process you go through for that? Uh, there's not really a process. I've, it was an interesting exercise. I kind of looked back to see what the, the initial contact was because it's always people reaching out to me. I never, you know, I don't do sales. Um, and I wanted to find like the first email that came to me from, from some of my biggest, best clients. Um, and, and by and large, they're all crazy. Like the first email was just, no punctuation, you know, quick, da, 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 like we're doing this. I mean, just like the, the weirdest things that, you know, my first inclination <coughs> would be hit delete, but you know, I pause and I'm like, all right, maybe I'll just engage. Maybe I'll respond. And those things kind of turn into, they've turned into the best things I've, I've had. Um, and the most, like the most fulfilling, you know, it's not the most money by any means. It's just the most, most interesting and the most fulfilling projects. Um, no, I, I, I got a, like, I got an email template, that I just re if somebody's like, Hey Mike, you know, just wanted to reach out, see if you'd be interested in whatever. Um, I just send them an email back. It, it's a template that says like, you know, thanks so much for reaching out. This is what I do. Like, this is how I work. Mm -hmm. If that's of interest, um, let me know. Yeah. I, I, I guess in my mind, I, I kind of, I discount things that are not good opportunities for me, things I don't want to do. Like, um, you know, for whatever reason, from a business standpoint or from a geographic time zone standpoint um, or, or a size standpoint. So I, I kind of I just mentally go through all that stuff. But it's, it's not too frequent where I, I need like a set a set system to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes a lot of those decisions are <clears throat> are more unconscious than they are conscious. And it has a lot to do with the um, the personal interaction. If I get a, <clears throat> if I get on the phone with somebody, you just see you just know. Right. You, you just know you're like, man, this person's full of it or this person is spending 90 percent of their time talking and not listening. I, I don't think I want to work with them. Right. It's just things like that that come up. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, so uh, we've been at this uh, 45 minutes almost. So I want to respect your time. Uh, so I got a couple of things uh, and then we'll wrap it up. All right. So uh, what's next for Mike Del Preti? <laughs> I think this is it. Just keep doing this. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it gets to the point where it's not fun, um, then I'll start looking at something else. But for the time being, I just think keep trucking along. Uh, the, the question a lot of people ask is, don't you want to start your own company again? And I do think about that. And I, I you know, never say never. Um, so maybe. But I think for right now, like what I'm doing just gives me the, the freedom and flexibility that's great. I can, you know, hang out with my kids. I can go bike riding. Um there's it's it's a lot of good stuff yeah it's almost like uh, being retired yeah it's funny you make that because we make that joke all the time we're like i just you know we like jen and i will sit out and have breakfast on the front porch in the morning and like 
it, it is exactly like being retired, which has been excellent training for being locked down in our home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I retired this uh, past July. So, uh, congratulations. I, I uh, highly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's quite nice. I, uh, I, 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 it was one of those things where like you, my career is very similar, right? I ha I do like three to four year stints in places and mm. then I get bored and I rarely stay in the same industry. I, I go someplace else. Right. So, yeah, yeah. uh, it's, it's, I, I have that, I share that gene with you, whatever that gene is. Uh, I think mm -hmm. we both have it. And, uh, I, it was like, okay, I'd, I'd been a professor. I, I had an endowed chair at Clarkson. So I've done, I did that for like three years. And all right, that's enough. I got, I got to go find something else. And I, I found retirement. And, uh, I yeah. think if, I think if something came along that like, like you, if it got me interested, right. If, if it, if then I'd, I'd, I'd go do something, but yeah. I'm not out looking to go do something. Right. I'm not trying to pick yeah. a, B or C. I'm just, you know, something comes along. Great. That's a, that's a wonderful way to be. I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm always, uh, appreciative of people who think that way. And I'm, I'm grateful to be in the position where I can do that. Yeah. You know, I, I could, I could kind of spend two years when I got back from New Zealand, just pursuing a passion, um, because of, you know, because of what had happened before. So I'm, I'm like really grateful that I'm in that position and, and been able to been able to pursue it in the way that I have, you know, realizing not everybody has that, you know, has that luxury. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike, is there any question that I should have asked you that I didn't, or is there anything else you want to share with the audience? No, I don't think so. That was a good set of, a good set of questions. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's well, fun. Yeah. Well, it's, I, hey, this is, this is the one thing I'm doing since I'm sort of retired. Right. So it's, this is a blast. Yeah. I get to, with, sometimes I get to catch up with old friends like you. And other times I get to meet new people that I've, I've never known before. And, yeah. uh, they're always, they're always interesting conversations. Every one of these that I've done has been very interesting. So thank you That's very great. much for, uh, taking the time to spend with me here and, uh, to catch up. It was great to see you again. And, uh, I wish you the best of luck going forward and we should touch base on a semi-regular basis. That'd be great. I'd enjoy it. No, thanks, Bela. It was great talking to you again after so many years and definitely stay in touch. We'd love to talk again soon. Yep, that'd be great. See you, Mike. All right. See ya. Bye. Bela, that was fascinating. I loved it. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me was how important curiosity was to Mike and how he built into his time, his routines, time for being curious. Now, even if you have a 60 hour a week job and three kids to take care of and you're working from home and all these things, right? How can you build in time for being curious and learning? Well, that's a great question, Mike. And it's just like anything else that you find important, you have to make time for it. Uh, you know, I'm a runner. I like to run every day. So somehow I find an hour in uh, every day to go out for my run and I figure out how to do it. Sometimes it's in the dark. Uh, late at night. Sometimes it's early in the morning. Sometimes it's the middle of the day. So I think part of it comes down to saying, hey, look, this is really important to me. And I'm going to figure out and set aside some time every day, or doesn't have to be every day. It could be once a week. Uh, you know, you figure out how frequently you want to do it, uh, but then set aside time. That's your time in order to explore that. And I think curiosity is one of these things that, um, uh, you know, is 
for some people, it's an, it's sort of a gene that's turned on when you're born. I mean, I look at my granddaughters and, you know, and, and you look at little kids, some are exceptionally curious and they're always wandering around, you know, distracted by all sorts of things and exploring and, and others are more content doing different things. So, uh, some people have that, uh, gene turned on and Mike clearly does. Uh, he's, he's very curious about things. He, he likes to learn, uh, and he likes to explore things. And then the interesting thing is he, he not just learns about those things, he does something with that knowledge that he has gained. He figures out how to put pieces together from, from this pile and that pile and a fourth pile. And, and he puts them together in sort of some unique way and, and generates or produces some value. Uh, so I think that's one of the the other important elements of this that Mike had, right? It's not just curiosity, but it's the ability to synthesize something from those things that he learned during that that exploration. Yeah, so it was interesting, Bela, that to hear the process that he went through. So he transformed from just a curious person, and then the vehicle that he used was really his writing, right? By writing about what he learned, that that was kind of the tool that he used to share his ideas, and that's what helped him turn his curiosity into an actual brand, right? Into uh, his reputation, right? Into his social capital, his currency, however you want to frame it. This was really interesting. So he really used, he had the curiosity naturally, but what he didn't have was finding kind of his voice and then getting his ideas out there and seeing if people value it. How do you do that? Well, I think as you were saying that, I wanted to make another quick point here related very much to that. If you're curious, there, there's there's sort of three ways that that uh, you can think about this. One is you're curious and it stops there. That's it. The other the other method that you sort of hear about is people write it down in sort of a journal or a logbook, right? That's sort of one kind of embodiment of it. Um, and then the third way I think is what Mike does or Mike did. He, he sort of figures out how to write that and get it out there into the world and have the rest of the world comment on it uh, and, and hopefully use it in some valuable way. And I think that's the, that's the key important piece here. Because if you write it in your own journal, you know, your own diary, it's good. It's good for you. Uh, but if you're thinking of trying to build this into your brand or your reputation or your company's brand or reputation, you have to put it out there so that people can read it and they can assimilate it. And I think that's what Mike did very well. And he started that by, by writing some articles and, you know, from those articles, he developed a reputation. People read them. And, you know, these days, it's so easy on a relative, relative basis compared to 30, 40 years ago to, to publish something because there's so many outlets. And look, Mike, you're, you're a full-time professor, right? You, you guys uh, publish all sorts of things. How do you think about it? And how, do, how, do you, how do you make this happen for you? Well... It's important if you're, I guess, a professor at a school that wants you to share your knowledge with the world. And different different universities have different missions and do things. And um, But at least at the schools that I've worked at, it's always been valued to share your ideas, to share the knowledge that you generate. 
through your research, through your teaching, through your thinking. And teaching in the classroom is one way to do that. But I've always been encouraged to A, publish my academic research in academic articles where other professors would read it. Um, and I've, I've done some of that and haven't been most successful at it, but I've got uh, done that at least at a reasonable level throughout my whole career, so I didn't get fired. Right? Uh, and then the, the second way that we do this a lot of times is through generating knowledge that's interesting and valuable to practitioners. Um, so I've written um, some articles that have gone into these article, these magazines, essentially that um, that managers would read. Like, you know, the big name ones are like Harvard Business Review or MIT Sloan Management Review. And I've never published in those, although a lot of my friends have. Um, and so I know the process. But um, then there's kind of the next level down. And so those Harvard Business Review is hard to get an article into. Right. It's, it, it, it's, it's a, a little bit of a challenge. But. Um, there's a, the next tier down are articles that are generally industry specific. Like I published a couple articles in a magazine called supply chain management review that supply chain managers read, right? Um, or I published one in a magazine that information systems people read on healthcare information systems. Um, and those journals are actually usually looking for good articles. And you can go, if you're looking at the paper version, old school of the magazine, there's always inside the cover, it usually says uh, instructions for authors, or if you want to sub submit a manuscript, or if you go to the website of the magazine, there's usually something information for authors or to submit a manuscript. And usually when I've done that, it's just started with an email to the, to the editor to say, hey, I've either written a paper that's about this, and I was wondering if it might be something you'd be interested in reading, um, or hey, I have this idea for an article and I was wondering if this was something you'd be interested in and if you could give me a little guidance, I can tailor it to what you, your needs are. And every time I've sent something, I've always gotten a positive answer back. It's almost always, hey, sure, um, we'd like something, you know, we have a special issue coming up on this or um, this is something that our readers are really interested in. I'm having trouble finding, um, finding somebody to write an article. So if you want to send us an outline, that would be great. And then sometimes it stops there and they say, no, this isn't exactly what we're looking for or whatever, but... Um, but usually you can start up a, a report with the editor and they'll give you some guidance and um, and hopefully accept your paper and you wind up getting it in a practitioner article, which is great. Um, and that both of these, if you publish something in an academic journal, but even more so in these practitioner journals, it's a nice, easy way to get some of your ideas out and it builds your reputation. So then I get calls from people or emails. They some of them are kind of off the wall, but some of them are like, hey, um, I need this help with a problem that you wrote about. Would you be interested in talking about maybe doing some consulting for me? Or somebody with a startup idea asks if they, I can give them some coaching or some guidance. Um, I've had several invitations to go give speeches based on stuff that I've written. And I don't know these people, right? So there's a lot of ways to do it. And you really just need to look and ask and say, okay, is there a magazine that I could get this submitted to? And just start that conversation. You don't know where it'll lead to. And then, Bela, there's all kinds of other ways. And maybe you can talk about this a little bit. There's, you can start your own blog. You can do a podcast like what we're doing. There's all kinds of ways to get your ideas out there. Those are sometimes a little harder to establish a reputation from, but it's a start. It's a, st it's a, it's a, it's a starting point. Any thoughts yeah, on your end? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. That was that was a a, a good sort of uh, view of it, and I, and I think the the beauty of of doing something in a publication like a magazine or a, a journal or a newspaper uh, or something that's put out by somebody else or being a guest on someone else's podcast, uh, for example, 
it, it sort of gives you a stamp of approval, right? So it's it's a way that sort of establishes your credibility. You're not necessarily writing your own blog, which is a way to do it, and and, and that's fine and that's good. Uh, but by having other people uh, attest to your expertise uh, or knowledge, uh, it adds additional value to it. And in these days. It's so easy with the Google machine to sort of go out and find this, you know, third-party validation to say, oh, wow, this person published an article here, here, and there, and he's appeared, appeared on these three podcasts. He must really know what he's talking about. And if, and if our listeners remember uh, back in episode 74, Andy Shell, who built a business taking people out sailing on the ocean, right, started also early in his career by writing about some of his experiences. And he started that by submitting some articles to a small regional publication that's around the Chesapeake Bay of the United States uh, called Spin Sheet. And he published a couple articles there. And and he learned and he, he got some credibility there. And then he went and published some more articles in national magazines. And, now all of, and then that all of a sudden, he's a personality in that industry, right? He's an expert in that industry. And, 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 and all of a sudden, when he wants to do something, uh, he has that credibility. So this notion of sort of establishing your brand um, and, 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 and how to do it is really important for all entrepreneurs, right? It's really, really important. Even if I put my venture capital hat back on, uh, you know, one of the first things we would do when we got a business plan from, an, from a budding entrepreneur is we'd Google their name, right? We 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 try to learn about them, right? What credibility do they have? What other people are talking about them, etc. So it's so easy to do these days. Uh, so it's important for you as an entrepreneur uh, 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 to do that. And and you have to remember that all of these outlets that exist today are always looking for content. I mean, think about someone who publishes a magazine, right? Every month, they need to produce whatever it is, 20, 30 pages of content. So they're always looking for content. And, and, don't and start... budgets are tight. They're not going to pay you to do this right. in most <laughs> likelihood, right? right? So you got to yeah. understand that. You're doing this for free, right? That's right. But that's, the, that's kind of the, the way it works. Huh? You're, you're, you're doing this to establish your reputation and brand, right? right? It's an so investment. So that you can get paid in the future. Uh, you're, yep. you're not going to get paid now. And think about who you want the audience to be, right? Publishing something in a Harvard Business Review or the Wall Street Journal is a different audience than publishing something in your local newspaper or an industry magazine. So think about who you're trying to reach. And that's, that's the place you want to go poke around at. That's the place you want to, want to try to, to get something published and, and, and to put some of your ideas, your content, your thoughts out into yeah, start local, right? I mean, it, literally, if you happen to run into the editor of the local paper, right, and you're like, hey, I have some ideas about this, especially if it's an interesting niche that the the readers might be listening to, pitch the editor of the local paper and see if you can write a, a guest op-ed piece or something like that. I mean, these are pretty low bars to hit. And if you're a reasonably good writer, you can you can make your start this way. Um, you know, and you, especially if it's something you have some experience in or some passion about, off you go. So yeah, you can really start hyper local on this, Bela. That's a really good point, and then it can grow from there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, anything else we want to hit on this one, Mike? 
No, but you know, I think this was a great interview, and it's somebody who's really taken a portfolio approach to his to his career, right? Uh, I like how I said he was unemployable, right, in a big company now, and I'm kind of the same way as a you know a lifelong academic now, almost my whole life. But um, but yeah, he does some consulting, he advises some startups, he teaches, he does writing. It's really a neat lifestyle, and I think that it's actually feasible for a lot of people. But you have to start. I mean, he had some breaks, and he realizes that, right, and made some good decisions. Uh, had some good luck. You need all these things, but there's no reason why if you're young, starting to build this brand to write, be curious and write about it, find a niche that has some value there where there's not a lot of competition and make a name for yourself. And and I think that's a cool strategy for people to find, whether you want to work for one big company for the rest of your life or whether you want to take more of an approach like Mike did. I think this idea of, of being curious and doing a little bit of writing is something that's a no-lose uh, situation. But like you said, Bela, like with running, it's something you have to put some time into um, every week or or regularly. Um, and again, like with running, sometimes it's good to have a partner. Like Bela, you and I do this podcast together and we hold each other accountable, right, to doing interviews and thinking about it. And it's a way that you and I solve our inner curiosity uh, and try to do something that maybe in a small way is useful for other people. Um, so I guess we, you know, we're, we we follow our own advice here in terms of what we're telling people to do, which uh, which makes me feel better. But yeah, I thought it was a great interview and it was nice for you to reconnect, I think, with somebody that you had a, a shared past with, right? Uh, a long time ago at the RPI incubator, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it was very, it was very good to connect with Mike. And, you know, as as you were saying that, Mike, I was thinking about Mike Del Preti and, and this notion that, you know, he started as a software developer, you know, ended up in sort of developing software for the gaming industry. And then he went and worked for a large company in sort of mergers and acquisition and strategy, sort of unrelated to sort of his first thing, right? And then after that, he then got into this real estate technology thing. So th what's the common thread there, right? For him, it's this notion of the curi curiosity and being able to look at things and, and, and pull these various different pieces together and synthesize something from them. And, and you know, he's curious, he, he writes, and just like anything, just like with my running, right? I have to develop my running muscles to get to the point where I'm really good. And, and, and that's what, you know, he said, okay, this is important for me to codify these things, to write them down and to try to get them out there and judged by other people. And you got to develop that muscle. It takes time. It's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Um, so with anything, you got to work at it. You got to focus on it. Set yourself some parameters and metrics and some goals you want to achieve. And, uh, and you can do it. And, and I think that he, Mike Del Preti was just a great example of that. Yeah. The last thing I want to add to that, Bela, is that um, if you're somebody thinking, oh, you know, I'm curious and I have a lot of ideas, but I'm a bad writer. Or I hate writing. I mean, A, you get better the more you write. I've taught a lot of people to write in my 25 years in higher ed. But the other thing is, you know, you can partner on this. There's no rule that says you have to be the sole author. You can have a, a, a in fact, all of the academic articles that I published, all of them, and I forget 25 or something like that, all of them I'm co-authored. And I'm actually usually the one that's the good writer and the other people are good at statistics or are great at collecting the data or whatever. And I'm actually the one that's a decent writer. Um, and and so you find somebody that has complementary skills. If you're not a great writer, partner up with somebody that's a great writer. And maybe they don't have your technical knowledge or their curiosity, but don't be afraid of that. Um, Every magazine that I've submitted something to, having two authors is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Right. I think yeah. partnerships partnerships are a great way uh, to do things. 
And I'll tell you, if I reflect back on 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 the things that I've done in life, uh, the times that I've had a partner like yourself on this podcast, uh, and I've had some partners in in my business endeavors, uh, those are the ones that were uh, not only successful, they were the most fun. Yeah. And actually, true fact, Bela, once I left and, and you know, our, the original idea I, I approached you actually was like, hey, do you want to write an article together? Right. On this stuff. And then you came back and said, mm, you know, that might be OK. But what I really want to do is a podcast. And that's how we, we started this. You know, whatever we are now, 80 some episodes ago. Right. Was with we were creative in finding a way that we could share our curiosity and get it out there. Right. Right. So exactly. Interesting. Very good. All right. Let's wrap this up. Takeaways today. Yep. Takeaways today. Be curious. Be analytical. Right. Brand. And, you know, again, it was neat when he said, I don't have to sell. People come to me. And I think that's a nice way to live your life. I mean, sales is really important. But if you can build up something where people come to you as an expert, that's a really nice position to be in uh, as you get older. So that's it. We're happy you joined us uh, today in our podcasting adventure. We hope that you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. Um, at this point, as we close, we'd like to remind you that uh, we thank Phillips Lytle LLP for sponsoring our podcast. Uh, and if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I can confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Hey, Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? So if you're interested... Uh... Give Rich Honan a call. He is a partner at Phillips Lytle. And uh, I've known Rich for, gosh, I think 25 plus years. And he's been on this show at least three times. Uh, and he can be reached at area code 518-618-1225 or via email at rhonan at phillipslytle.com. And of course, we'll have his contact information in our show notes. And another point, if listeners, you have questions about what we've discussed today, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, please do get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. We're always looking for more listeners. And we have a lot of great guests in the pipeline. So until next week, signing off from upstate New York. Have a great week, Mike. Thanks, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>